This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hey guys, I just want to make a quick apology because there is a bit of an audio situation going on. Uh, Father Matthew's mic, for whatever reason, and I didn't notice it before the recording started or when doing an audio test, but... It's making a strange noise. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but it can be a little distracting. I tried to denoise and, and do all I could to suppress the noise as much as possible, but you'll hear it a bit. And then as well, you're going to hear a, a fan. Um, I didn't hear the fan in the audio test, so I thought it wasn't showing up, but a few times it will show up. Uh, I apologize for that, and I hope in the future to make sure to remedy these a little better. Um, but regardless, uh, I thought the episode was too good to kind of redo or um, just scrap. So I, I hope you guys enjoy regardless of that. And uh, thank you guys for watching. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have a very special guest, uh, Father Matthew Markowicz. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, Father Matthew Markowicz. <laughs> Uh, I'm a priest at Christ the Savior Orthodox Church in Boston Spa, New York. I've been a priest for 10 years at this church for eight years. I'm married. I have two kids. Um, I'm a convert myself from Protestantism and only that for two years. Before that, I was raised mostly non-religious uh, with a slight emphasis on Christianity. So there's, a, there's an introduction in a nutshell. How's that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a... A good introduction to who you are, and um, for those who don't also know, uh, Father Matthew is actually my own spiritual father. As many of you probably know, I have been having this journey to orthodoxy. It actually began yeah. before I started the channel, but uh, you know, it has now evolved and um, sometimes become a part of of the commentary that I give. But I wanted to really first actual tackle especially on the channel into orthodoxy with my own spiritual father because uh, i think he's a great speaker and really understands orthodoxy in a way that i think many of you will get and get something out of it so the first thing i wanted to ask of you father is what is orthodoxy for those who don't know it you know what is the the general gist of it um so it depends who i'm talking to <laughs> um yeah, so if I'm talking to, I'm assuming most of your followers are other kinds of Christians. 
that's usually the case. Um, I know there's a decent amount who are agnostic or, or yeah. some kind of atheist, but sure. you, mo- most of my followers, I actually did a poll recently. Most of them are some other kind of Christian. A decent amount are Orthodox already themselves, but uh, most are, are another type of Christian. So I'd say um, Orthodox Christianity, it is the first Christian church. It's the church rooted in the time of Christ and his apostles directly descended from that Book of Acts church. So that's for another Christian. For maybe someone who didn't believe, I'd just say it is ancient Christianity. It is the first kind of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So again, also for an atheist, I might say we believe in an all-powerful God. He made all things, became man out of his love for us. He died, he rose from the dead, so that death would no longer rule over mankind, but we'll all rise with him one day from the grave. Mm -hmm. That's orthodoxy in a nutshell. Obviously, it's a very simple version of what it is. Um, Yeah, and I I think we'll get definitely into uh, deeper topics, especially when compared to, you know, major different types of, of Christianity and talk about those. But um, I think a lot of people on their qu- a question that immediately pops in, even when talking about any denomination, is why be this denomination versus any other denomination? You know, now we have, uh, I think the number is around 70,000 different Christian denominations. And it's like, wh- why uh, pick sure. this one? You know? Um, well, again, uh, it depends on if, well, I'll say this, if you're another religion or you're an atheist, I think that decision is very individual. And I don't know if I could give you, here's the thing that would make you want to be orthodox. You would have to have an encounter with the true God. You'd have to know who is Jesus Christ. You'd have to have some sense in your heart that he is God, or either maybe an intellectual journey to realize he is God before we can have that conversation. But for someone who already believes in Christ, sorry, I have this fly buzzing around my face this entire time as well. My temptation for this, I guess. Um, We really believe that the Orthodox Church, as that direct continuation of the Church of the Apostles, has the fullness of the presence of God and the grace of God. So without judging what other Christian denominations have, we believe that our church has everything needed for the Christian life and salvation that other churches might be missing one thing or another, might be deficient in some ways, might be lacking in some ways, even if they have a lot of the truths that we teach too. Uh, but in some ways they might lack having lost that historical connection to the ancient church. But we have everything, the whole package, everything needed for that spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a very succinct uh, explanation. And I like the the one you gave about atheists and other religions, because as um, some may know my own journey, you know, I came from atheism uh, before that Mormonism, which on the surface very much looks Christian, but at its core, it really isn't. And, um, you know, I think for a lot of followers who aren't already, uh, you know, some type of Christian, this video might not convince you of of orthodoxy or, or Christianity, but maybe it'll give you that interest to maybe go have that uh, same experience that I had. Uh, but um, I wanted to further go into like, what does it mean to be an Orthodox person? You know, what does that look like the day to day? What is, what, what distinguishes someone who is Orthodox from someone who is not in, in a lot of ways? Okay. 
So literally what distinguishes them is that, well, you're baptized, chrismated, and go to communion. That's the primary, I mean, that's literally what makes someone orthodox. Now on a day-to-day -day level, uh, you might remember this from catechism when I catechized you. I would say there are three pillars of orthodoxy, but we could add two others as well. So there's prayer, so daily prayer, uh, prayers before meals, like prayer throughout the day, but especially a focused time of prayer every day. Fasting, fasting would be, uh, uh, the, the church calendar has different fasts that are appointed. Now they're not all from the early church, most of them are not, but we follow them in obedience as a form of discipline of the body and learning to say no to our passions and our desires. So that's fasting. And then almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, giving to the church, helping others in need, calling your mom when you haven't talked to her in a while, which I need to do probably today, actually. <laughs> uh, doing things that um, go out of yourself. It, it, literally, almsgiving in Greek is mercy-making, uh, showing acts of mercy to others. I'd also add two others, which is the reading of the scriptures and also uh, church service uh, attendance. I did not include that in prayer because it is distinct. You might remember I talked about it's a form of vigil. Keeping vigil is attending church, which is very much important and is needed to make all of this work. None of this really matters if we're skipping the church aspect or if we're skipping the prayer aspect. Really, really, all of those things are very vital. They're very much vital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I would definitely agree. And it, it is something that attracted me very early on, even when I was, you know, in, uh, still kind of dealing with being an atheist, but this like experience with God and um, was that there is a lot of stressing about these different pillars of faith that I, I never really saw from my own background and just my own exploration with other faiths, um, you know, there definitely is a, 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 an emphasis on maybe one or two in other denominations, but uh, never all three or all five in, in the case of the two that you can add on. Um, and that's something that really attracted me early on. Um, but speaking of other denominations, I wanted to kind of get into some nitty gritty and talk about some big differences. And I think the one that may be most relevant for my audience is talking about the differences between orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Because I know I have a lot of Roman Catholic followers. Um, while I wasn't Roman Catholic myself, I came from a very Roman Catholic family. Um, so I had a lot of, I grew up around it a lot. Um, and on the surface, I think a lot of people don't see a lot of differences. Um, you know, uh, a personal anecdote for me is uh, bringing my grandmother to it, who, you know, got to see pre-Vatican II masses um, early in her life. She's like, oh, this is just like how they were when I was a little kid and, and uh, when she went to a liturgy. But um, as, as somebody gets more acquainted with orthodoxy, I think they see more differences. And um, I just like to talk about some of those. And I think the first one that I think a lot of people bring up and really hone in on is this idea of papal supremacy and infallibility versus papal primacy. And I uh, just wanted to get uh, kind of the orthodox position about it and why we reject the Roman Catholic position. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, first, maybe what I like to say, it's not it's it's tangentially related, but um, I do want to emphasize that we have a lot more in common than not. 
Um, I just like to say that because, you know, it reminds me in the book. I'm sorry, this fly is just all over my face. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, in the book, St. Silo on the Athenite. Uh, I don't know if I'm recounting this story perfectly accurately, but St. Silo and his monastery, there was a missionary from the monastery who was going to, it was implied a Catholic country. And he was talking about how he was having trouble converting Roman Catholics. And St. Siloan um, gave him a correction. He said, when you go there, you're telling everyone how they're wrong and they need to change. And he said, instead, you should be affirming what they believe and how it is already good and how it could be even better. So I just want to make that emphasis that it's not so much Orthodox versus Catholics where we're very much on a similar page on so many issues. Mm-hmm. Not every issue, but many issues. But yeah, you're pointing out at the first of a, uh, a list of distinct differences that really have led to our division. But I still want to emphasize that foundation of commonality. There is a lot of commonality when it comes to what we believe. Mm-hmm. So, all right, you said uh, papal supremacy and papal infallibility. So, um, if you don't mind, I did have some stuff prepared because obviously we conferred a little bit. I have some stuff prepared because my favorite way of describing what someone else believes is not by telling, how do I say this? Not just sound bites, but like, what do they actually say about themselves? Um, I very much believe that uh, polemics these days, and I don't know, that's probably an aspect of your channel when it comes to politics. I don't really know. I don't, I don't watch your channel. Um, <laughs> but that it's really easy to misrepresent someone by taking it out of context. But like, you know, what do people actually teach and say about themselves? So I'm going to quote, this is Lumen Gentium. Uh, and it says this, and I, I don't know, how to, actually, I, as you know, I took Latin for a little bit, but not modern pronunciation ecclesiastical. So I, any Catholics watching, I might be mangling this. <laughs> so Lumen Gentium, we read this. The Pope, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, and as pastor of the entire church has full supreme and universal power over the whole church. Okay, so before we say what Orthodox believe, here's what Catholics believe. Now, it, it might sound metaphorical, it's not. So this is from the Vatican I document, Pastor Aeternus, which is from 1870. It says this, all of whatever right, right, R-I-T-E, whatever right and dignity, both pastors and faithful both individually and collectively are bound. And, uh, um, the, the quote keeps going, so I kind of uh, just to stop here to direct obedience to the Pope himself. Um, and the document continues: He is the supreme judge of the faithful. So the vicar of Christ—that means that the Pope is in place of Christ, rules over the Church in Christ's place, and he's so great an authority that, according to their own teaching. Not even the ecumenical councils can overrule a pope or can judge a pope. Um, While the pope is a bishop, he has full authority over all other bishops wherever they reside in the entire world and every individual Roman Catholic Christian. And really, they would say every individual Christian, because all of us essentially, in one way or another, are tied to the Catholic Church. Uh, either loosely or more solidly. Like I'd say the Orthodox are just Catholics in schism or Protestants or ecclesial communities. I think that's the language that they use. And finally, they teach that when the Pope teaches ex cathedra, literally means from the throne, um, uh, meaning when he's in his teaching position as successor of St. Peter, that his words are infallible. 
Now, there are very particular circumstances, and as I understand it, Roman Catholic scholars don't all, all agree on what documents have papal infallibility, because it's not like everything the Pope says is infallible. It's some things he says in a certain context, but scholars don't always agree on what those things are. Hmm. So we disagree with a lot of this, quite a bit of it. So we teach in the time of the early church, the Roman church was the first among equals in the Orthodox world. And the popes had authority over some, but not even most bishops, definitely not all bishops in the world. And that's how local churches function to this day in Orthodoxy. By local church, I mean like a national church. For example, you and I are part of the Orthodox Church in America. So that's a local church. It's, well, that's complicated, the American Orthodox situation. But in the Orthodox Church in America, we're presided over by a metropolitan bishop, Metropolitan Tikhon. He presides over what is called the Holy Synod, which is all the local like the Diocese of the West has a, a bishop. The Diocese of New York and New Jersey has a bishop. The Diocese of the South has a bishop. But all of them gathered together have one bishop who is elected to preside over them, the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tikhon. He presides but does not rule over. He can't order other bishops what to do, although they have delegated him some authority over them. So that's how we believe that churches are run historically. A bishop presides over a number of bishops by a mutual agreement and consent, and that bishop might be given more power than the other bishops have in order to run that local church more effectively. So we believe that the Pope was the number one out of the whole Orthodox world. He was the bishop who presided. Um, now the issue is that papal supremacy says that he has direct universal jurisdiction over every single Christian, not just bishops, not just priests, even individual Christians. And that's not something we believe, like Metropolitan Tikhon, even though we pray for him at every service, we don't believe that he has authority over our parish, or over our individual church. Even if he wants to come to our church, he needs to get permission from our local bishop. Without our bishop's permission, he shouldn't even be at our church. So that's, that's how it works in the Orthodox Church, which is what we see in the early Christian model. And we believe that over about 600 years, popes gradually came to view themselves less and less as the first among equals and more and more as the first without equals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that kind of gets down to the position and like kind of clarifying, because I think sometimes even... Um, it's confusing for Roman Catholics about that issue. As you said, there is a lot of disagreement about papal infallibility. So I can see how it can be extremely confusing for people who are outside of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, trying to describe it. But I think you get to the core of what, uh, you know, is the disagreement there and, and why that disagreement exists. Um, but I wanted to talk about another issue, which is another issue that comes straight from I would say from this issue and was bundled together at what caused the great schism. And that's the philoque. Um, and I think that's one that most people don't actually understand why it's an issue in the first place. Um, there's not even a lot of talk about it anymore. Um, even in the context of the debate between Roman Catholics and Orthodox, um, especially online. 
Philoquay is not brought up very much while papal supremacy is. But I still, I, I think it's something to go over. And I think especially for people who are outside of the context of Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, because they are especially, they don't understand. And um, I, I just kind of get into what it is, why it's important, and, and where we differ on it from yeah. the Roman Catholic position. So I will say it is such a technical sort of doctrine that people have poured research in. I don't think I can even get close to doing it justice. So I'll try to do a simpler version, if you don't mind, because honestly, it's for my sake. I'm a simpler kind of guy. <laughs> I, I don't mean that to uh, sound falsely humble. I really, truly mean I don't understand. <laughs> I've read books on this and I still end the book saying, I'm not sure I fully understand. <laughs> so I'm going to give you what I do understand, okay? Uh, and hopefully that's good enough. And I can recommend a book. I own it. And I forgot to actually bring it out. I might have to get back to you on this book. May, um, but I do have a book specifically on the Orthodox response historically to the Filioque in the 1200s. Um, but at the Council of Blackarnay, I think it was. Anyway, let, uh, getting to this. So first, what is the Filioque? Filioque is Latin for and the sun. As it's actually, uh, well, it's not literally and the sun, but it, it, and the sun is how we say it in English. So it comes from the part of the uh, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and the Catholics add, and the Son. Okay? So it, you could say it's from and the Son. That's how you could translate it, really. So, uh it was added to Western churches in about the ninth century. Scholars believe it probably began in the Church of Spain in the, the sixth or seventh century, possibly as a way of reconciling straggling Arians to the Orthodox Church or Catholic Church. I mean, both we use both terms. Uh, Catholic Church is honestly more historical to use. So, um, again, it was added to the Western churches in about the 9th century, and then it was re-added later in the 11th century, because it was removed in the meantime due to the efforts of St. Photius the Great, who was not St. Photius the Great in um, the Roman Catholic world, uh, except among Byzantine Catholics. Then the Filioque was codified as dogma, I believe, at the Second Council of Lyon in 1272. That's what my research said. So the Filioque issue is historically one of the most crucial reasons that our churches are split, other than papal supremacy and uh, all that stuff. So what does it actually mean? So let me let me tell you, in the Catholic model, the Father has no cause. So we're getting into like Trinitarian theology. Uh, the Father, God the Father has no cause. He is. We Orthodox agree. The Son has a cause. The Father is his cause. That's why the Son is begotten of the Father. So, the Son's existence, if we could use that term, which is not a helpful term for the Trinity, the Son is begotten by the Father. We agree. The Holy Spirit, according to Catholics, is, is uh, breathed out. Actually, that's, the, the, um, that's a patristic term. He's breathed out, spirated, right? Ex exhaled by the Father, and then the Catholics would add, and by the Son as well. That's where we disagree. We'd say only by the Father. So the Orthodox model is the Father here at the top of the pyramid, from him come the Son and the Spirit. 
So in the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Spirit has its origin in two processions, two breathings, two spirations from the Father and the Son. For us, one procession, the Father alone. Now, St. Photius the Great has a, uh, a quote on this. And by the way, many Catholics don't agree with the logic of his quote, but it's still a helpful quote for our objection. It says this, If the Son is begotten from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Son, how is it then that this doctrine does not, according to its own line of reasoning, make the Spirit a grandson? So I know... Be, being begotten and being breathed out are not the same thing. And we know that uh, other fathers even say that they're not the same. And we don't know really what the difference is, but they're not the same. But you get his point. He's saying, if the father, if the son comes from the father and the spirit comes from the son, that makes the spirit almost like a grandson and a son of the father at the same time. Again, many Catholics disagree with this line of reasoning of St. Photius. But I'm just letting you know that's one of our objections. So um, I, I could just say in a nutshell, that's why we would disagree with this doctrine. We believe it distorts the apostolic teaching on the Holy Trinity. I should add one thing, though. Um, now we might think, well, what about in, in the scriptures where, you know, Christ sends down the Holy Spirit? Well, we have to remember, not only did Christ send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also sent Christ. Can you think of a time... I like to ask, you probably remember this from catechism, because I like to ask the question, can you think of a time that, that the Holy Spirit sent Christ? Yeah, I... Uh, the, I'm interviewing you now, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. You turned <laughs> the tables on me. No, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think, if I remember from catechism correctly, it is the incarnation of Christ. It yeah, is, the, the Annunciation, because he was begotten by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and he was begotten. So in that case, well, begotten in time, not begotten by the Father, begotten by a woman. Mm. Um, but that was through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So we could dive much deeper into this, because there are truly church father sayings that are very filioque sounding. This book that I, I have uh, is, is crucial to unpacking that language Okay, so I found the book. It is called Crisis in Byzantium, The Filioque Controversy in the Patriarchate of Gregory II of Cyprus by Aristides Papadakis. This book was highly recommended to me to unpack it because this is, it is a recounting of the effects of the Second Council of Lyon on the Byzantine Empire, that there were pro-union parties within the Byzantine Empire who wanted to join the Catholic Church. They were pro-filioque, and this addresses the, the church council that was called to respond to the filioque uh, in the 1200s. I think it was the Council of Lacarnay. Um, by the way, that's another thing. I know Catholics sometimes say that one of the proofs the Orthodox Church is dead is because it doesn't have councils. We've got plenty of councils, and this concerns one of a very important council for medieval times in the 1200s. Mm -hmm. So no, we, we still have councils frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They're just not called ecumenical anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we kind of got into uh, a lot of, you know, about the filioque and even touched on, you know, why it's important. Um, but even though we're still talking about Roman Catholicism to a Protestant, this doesn't sound very important to them. And yeah. just briefly, I, I want, wanted you to kind of just 
talk about why why we do find it so important, like that it was so important that we would, you know, risk schism over it. Right. Well, first, I think a Protestant has to understand in their world, the differences between the different Protestant groups is so much more pronounced that this seems like a little issue in comparison. Right. In the Protestant world, there could be disagreements on free will, on the role of the scripture, on what is grace. On There are disagreements on all sorts of theological issues. So it shows that the Catholic and Orthodox churches, for all they disagree on, a lot of it is very technical. A huge amount of what Catholics and Orthodox believe is the same. Much more in common between us than I would say Protestants have between each other. Um so I would say that firstly, that they have to appreciate the fact that, you know, from their point of view, there's a lot more variation within their world. We have less variation within the Catholic Orthodox world than there is in the Protestant world, you could say, theologically speaking. So that's one. Number two, though, is we really believe that the church preserves the truth, that Christ's true church cannot uh, teach heresy, cannot fall as a whole into heresy. So... When a local church changes the truth after some time, uh, uh, especially if there's a division, only one group can still claim to still be the true church. So this issue, even though it seems it might seem small, it directly impacts which church is the historical church of Christ, which church is still preserving what the apostles taught and which one is not. Yeah. So it's those two things. Yeah, I think I think that's a very succinct explanation of, of why it's important and kind of the one that uh, eventually convinced me, because very early on, I think I very much had that view, too, of like, this seems very inconsequential, um, but it, it does have it does create a real division that is important to understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think on to a. Uh, uh, um, a doctrine that I think is a little more pronounced in its division is one that actually developed post-schism. And I think that's one that a lot of people, um, especially Roman Catholics, don't th understand that we do have this different. And that is about the Immaculate Conception. Um, because while both of us do give veneration to Mary and, and place Mary at a very high esteemed role, which I'm sure we'll get into more um, later, but we don't I, I, I would characterize it myself as we don't go as far as uh, Roman Catholics. And I think Immaculate Conception is the big doctrine there that 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 kind of shows where that difference is. And so I kind of wanted to um, get into what that is and, and why the Orthodox do not believe in Immaculate Conception. So let me say, um, I, in my opinion, I, I would not consider this as divisive of an issue. It is an issue where we're different, but I would say the last two were far more important. This one, mm -hmm. actually, it, it might even be a matter of timing that we simply disagree on. So from my understanding, and again, so I have to say on this doctrine, I'm not as familiar. Um, but when it comes to, well, first, let's say what the Roman Catholic dogma is. Uh, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, it's called a dogma in the Catholic Church. That means it's essential to believe now. And it did not used to be, but it is now. Um, the Catholic dogma of the Immaculate Conception is that the mother of God, the Theotokos, Mary, was conceived in the womb of righteous Anna without any stain of original sin. 
So she was conceived kind of like Eve in paradise, um, untouched by the effects of sin. So, yeah, we Orthodox don't, don't accept this. Um, first of all, it creates a possible logical absurdity that if, if the mother of God had to be pure enough to conceive Christ at her own conception, well, what about her mother at her own conception? So that's one explanation I've heard, and I'm not, I'm not totally sold on that one, but that's one explanation I've heard of why we don't accept it. But the more important one is that the church fathers really didn't universally teach this. And that's a big issue for us, which is some Catholic beliefs may have been among the early church in a seminal form, like here or there. Um, but then there are other fathers who directly contradicted it. In fact, from my own understanding, most church fathers who wrote about this says that she became pure at the Annunciation when she conceived Christ. Now, does that mean she had sinned before? Well, I'll tell you, St. John Chrysostom and St. Theophilact of Ocreed both said she did sin. But, um, but I'll, I'll say most Orthodox would say she never sinned. That is the majority view. She never sinned. Um, but at least we would say a, most Orthodox would agree that at, by the Annunciation, she was purified. Now, there's also this issue, do Catholics and Orthodox have different visions of original sin? I have heard many fight to say, yes, totally different vision. And I've also heard many say, no, not a different vision at all. So I would prefer not to tackle that um, just because, again, I've seen both sides argue both ways. Um, I will tell you what the Orthodox, rather than saying what Catholics believe and telling a Catholic what they believe, let them tell me. I'll tell you what Orthodox believe, that we believe uh, original sin. We typically call it the ancestral sin, but original sin, honestly, is often used as well, not by everyone. But it's that Adam and Eve sin passes down to us like a disease going generation to generation uh, from our conception, uh, at the moment of our conception is what I mean, that as soon as we're conceived, we have the, the disease of original or ancestral sin upon us. Um, and that disease makes us liable to death, liable to sickness, uh, also desiring to sin. So that's in us from a very, very young age. Um, and it's a disease that just passed on generation to generation. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm glad actually you actually brought up uh, the little bit you did bring about original sin and then central sin, because I think uh, you'll, you'll actually see a debate within orthodoxy, especially online, about this topic. But I, I, I think that bringing that up also clarifies our position on um, immaculate conception and definitely shows where this this kind of disagreement does come from um and, and why we don't accept it and, and some issues that may can't come from it um but the last kind of issue i wanted to go into about differences between orthodoxy and roman catholicism is uh kind of an interesting one because i think it's it's not something also just exclusive to roman catholicism but all christians in general and that is the, this concept of Hades that we have. Um, the Roman Catholics have something somewhat similar in purgatory, but most Protestants, as far as I'm aware, do not have anything like this. And um, but but Hades, <laughs> Hades is something. Hades is something that always it, it was a huge convincing point actually for me in my own journey 
to orthodoxy because it one sounded very biblically sound and two uh, just made a lot of sense in, in the greater context of the theology of, of Christianity. So I kind of wanted to go into what is Hades? Why, why do we have this distinction and how is it different than purgatory? Sure. Um, so uh, first let me talk about um, I think before talking about Hades, I want to talk about purgatory and indulgences. So in the Catholic Church, there's two kinds of forgiveness of sin, or there's two kinds of effects of sin. There's eternal effects and temporal effects. So they have indulgences and they have confession. The difference between them is this. Confession is for getting rid of the eternal weight of sin. Indulgences are for getting rid of the temporal weight of sin. So eternal weight of sin, what would that lead to? Hell. Temporal weight of sin, what does that lead to? Purgatory. So purgatory is a place where you are purged of your, they're called venial sins. If you have a mortal sin in the Catholic Church, you're not going to heaven. No, there's no questions. At least that's as I understand it. Maybe I'm wrong there. So venial sins are purged in purgatory. It's a room for purging. Indulgences are granted by the Pope alone, but he can allow bishops and even priests sometimes to dispense them uh, by, by his discretion. And indulgences can be partial. That is, maybe you lose so many years off in purgatory, or indulgences might be plenary, meaning you lose all years in purgatory. Now, I believe the Catholic Church would say we don't really know how long is purgatory, what exactly is it like. Some describe it as a kind of hell before heaven. So it is a place of torment. Some describe it as a waiting room. Um, I don't think there is a dogmatic definition, as I understand it, to what exactly the experience of purgatory is. Now, what we would say is we Orthodox don't believe at all in indulgences, and we don't believe in purgatory. We do believe in Hades. So we believe, and actually we would say that the doctrine of purgatory evolved from this early Christian do uh, doctrine. So Hades is simply the place of the dead. Obviously, before the coming of Christ, all the dead went there. It's also called Sheol in Hebrew. After the coming of Christ, now only the unrighteous go there, the ones who are preparing to go to hell. So what we teach is that we can pray souls out of Hades. Uh, so, what, so the Catholics pray for the dead so that they can speed their way through purgatory. We pray for the dead so that their souls might be saved from from the future uh, descent into hell. In other words, they're already on their way there. So I know, like you said, some Protestant viewers might think, where the heck is this in the Bible? Well, let me say, the Bible talks about two judgments, right? Uh, now, this is my own argument. I haven't heard other Orthodox say this, so I, I could be wrong on it. But I, I think it's a perfectly fine explanation of what the scriptures say. First, there's what's called the particular judgment, which is the judgment at death. Then there's the eternal judgment at the second coming of Christ. Well, why are there two judgments if they're, all, if they're going to be the same? Well, I would say it's like this. Imagine when you're caught doing a crime, you're put in a holding cell. That's before your trial. But you're put in a holding cell because you're caught doing the crime. Which means someone can pay your bail and get you out before the trial even happens. So we would say that's what the church does. The first judgment, the particular judgment, is the holding cell, Hades. 
The church can pay your bail through prayer, uh, through offerings, all that sort of thing. That we can help your soul in Hades if your soul desires to be helped. Not everyone wants to be helped. And that through those prayers and offerings, we can save those who are bound for hell in the future, bound for that second judgment. So we don't believe that we can only pray for those that we know are going to heaven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a very good explanation. I actually I haven't heard you use the the bail analogy, so this is interesting to hear it the first time because I think it's a very good analogy for um how this doctrine works and it was especially convincing to me and I, I remember it being very convincing because I, I remember the Bible using two different words also for hell. They used Hades, but Hades doesn't translate to hell. And Gehenna, which does translate to hell. Yeah, and they use it there's other words too, contexts. but yes, those are the two main ones. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and I remember them hearing them in two different contexts. And 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 so it very much the first time I heard the doctrine of, of Hades, I was very much, well, yeah, that actually, that, that, that makes sense. Just what I can remember, you know, at that point, I hadn't read the Bible in quite a while. Because, right. um, you know, I had... I read it th through the context of being an atheist many years ago. Um, but I, I think that it is certainly one where people start to feel and, and they have these other issues kind of clear up for them. I know for a lot of people, um, a lot of people are very wary of the idea that non-believers will just go straight to hell and, and, and think, how could God be just because of that? And I think something like this very much solves for that uh, um and, yeah. and gives us a path that that is um gives us a way to 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 kind of reconcile this this idea that um god is good but also that you know he isn't going to damn you know people to hell just because they don't believe in him yeah i see what you're saying mm -hmm. um yeah, that, that is an interesting idea, but I'll, I'll say this, actually. my my When I became Orthodox, one of my great consolations was knowing that, I mean, most of my family is atheist. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, it's not for me to judge. God is judge. Um, but what a, what a relief to be able to pray for them, not just while they're alive, but even after they've died. My, do my dad died five years ago, and as far as I know, he died as an atheist. You know, God only knows if that's true, um, but I still pray for him, and I I don't have anxiety. I I have hope that he can be saved, mm -hmm. um, and it's not for me to judge anyway. You know, it's it's not for us to know. God is judge, not us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think that's a very good way to put it, and I think it's also a place of a lot of of real hope for. Um, the Orthodox, and um, hopefully those who, who might accept that position. Um, yeah. But now that we've, I think, I think we've gone into a lot of the differences with Roman Catholicism, and, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, but um, I wanted to go into differences between Protestants, because I think, as you've said many times, the differences are much, much more vast, because they're even vast between each other. 
But I think there are a few points that are relatively consistent um, among Protestants, and you will find that uh, are major departures from the Orthodox belief. Um, And the first, I think, is, is something that I think underpins almost every Protestant denomination. I've yet to see one that it doesn't. And that is the concept of sola scriptura, uh, which is something we don't, we Orthodox and even Roman Catholics don't hold to. But I wanted to kind of ask, like, why that is? Why, why isn't scripture, you know, the sole authority of, of, of teaching for the church? Sure. Okay. So um, you asked about, like, the difference between Orthodox and Protestant. So uh, obviously, as I said before, Protestantism is vast and varied. Um, there's a whole lot of doctrinal difference between the different Protestant groups, as I understand it. But I'll say the main difference between Orthodox and Protestant is epistemology. That is why we believe what we believe. So for the Protestant, the foundation of belief is the Bible. For Orthodox, uh, it's the church, which expresses its belief primarily through the Bible, but also holy tradition. So the Bible is crucial to both sides and central to both sides, uh, but it's a matter of is it the Bible first or the church first? That's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. So let's first talk about sola scriptura. So sola scriptura is Latin for uh, only the scripture, um, that the Bible alone is the only proven to be divinely inspired source of Christian teaching. So there might be other helpful resources, you know, like some Christ, some Protestants will read what's called the Apocrypha, the extra books of the Old Testament. Some do not. Um, but only the Bible is truly known to be divinely inspired alone. So therefore, traditions of the church may be more or, or less acceptable depending on the Protestant group, right? Like Lutherans still typically wear vestments. They celebrate a mass. Um high church Anglicans as well, typically, or then you have Baptists who don't do any of those things, um, or their vestments are a suit and tie. So the problem with this is the Bible itself, ironically, doesn't teach the doctrine. And in fact, it implies it isn't even true. And in fact, it directly states the church is the foundation, not the Bible. So I I do have my proof text here, (laughs) my quote mining. Um, So let me read to you this. So first on, does the Bible teach this doctrine uh, of sola scriptura? The common verses that are used to justify this are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we, we read this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other translations say God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Where there does it say solely sufficient? It says profitable. It doesn't say all scripture alone is given by inspiration of God, or scripture alone is given by inspiration of God. It just says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It doesn't say and is sufficient. It's profitable. So that's number one. Even the proof text for Sola Scriptura doesn't say Sola Scriptura. It definitely says that Scripture is divinely inspired. That's absolutely true, and we agree. In another epistle, St. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, so it's uh, 2.15, 
Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Well, that's St. Paul saying, I give you traditions. Tradition means something that is passed down, a teaching that is passed down. Um, so obey what I teach you, whether by word, so in my mouth, or by epistle, by what I wrote. Which means not just what I'm writing for the New Testament, but the things I told you by mouth also apply. So I don't see anything in the Bible called the oral sayings of Paul. But he still said that we need to obey those things. Mm -hmm. So it shows the church's tradition is both written word and spoken word. And just, just to say this too. Now, obviously, um, you know, I'm not here to vouch for Orthodox Judaism, but I will tell you, as in like, I'm not saying it's the true faith, it's not. But I will tell you, they have a similar concept of Torah, the written Torah, and the oral Torah. They have the written tradition, which is the scriptures, and then the tradition which is not written, or that is written in different volumes, like the Talmud, the Mishnah, um, that, that gives you the proper interpretive tools for the scriptures and also teaches you things the scriptures may not even directly address or only kind of address. So this is a similar concept. It's not the same, but it's similar. Now, finally, we go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. It says this, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul didn't say anything, not, the whole scriptures don't say anything as big about the Bible itself. But the Bible itself says the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. This one says pillar and ground of truth. What does a pillar do? It upholds. What does ground do? It supports. So that the church is the foundation. It's, it's the thing on which the house is built. So the Bible is affirmed due to the church. This is why St. Augustine himself said this, and Luther knew about this quote, by the way, and he didn't like it. He, he said, uh, I think you're interpreting wrong, either he was wrong or you're understanding him, him the wrong way. But here's what he said, and is against the fundamental epistle, epistle of Manichaeus. It says this, For my part, I should not believe the gospel except as moved by the authority of the Catholic Church. And Augustine is one of the foundational figures of the Protestant movement. He's appealed to in so many aspects, but he believes the gospel because the Catholic Church told him to. So that's the same as we believe. The, the church comes before the gospel. The church comes before, as in the written gospels. I'm not talking about the gospel message. The church comes before the Bible. The Bible comes from the experience of the church. If all copies of the Bible one day vanished, the church would be able to rewrite it based on its experience and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which abides within the church. Yeah, I, How's that? I, I think that's a very good explanation of Sola Scriptura, because I think something in, in, in the first early journey I had with, with Christianity when I was still an atheist, but I was, I was like, well... I guess I should actually give a chance to these other religions and everything. Uh, consistently, what I found from Protestants with Sola Scriptura is uh, I, I did not see this claim in the Bible. And, and it, it created this own logical paradox in my own mind where it was like, 
well, how is this the sole authority when it doesn't say it's the sole authority and where, yeah. you know, if, if Sola Scriptura is not in the Bible, then how do you know that Sola yeah. Scriptura is true? And, Called and, circular and, reasoning. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how I, 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 I felt about it. And, um, and I think that it is definitely like that point by which all Protestants really agree on. And it just made it so so hard for me to 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 genuinely inquire into into any other protestant denomination just knowing that underpinning especially because it is so important um to to the to protestant faith and i think that the orthodox have the right kind of approach to it that that there is this interpretation that is needed and that there is something that produced the bible that is very important and, and even more important. Um, so well, think even think on a secular level, who put the New Testament together and what did all these churches do without a New Testament? So think, if you're in Ephesus in 50 AD, you may not even have a gospel yet, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You might have sayings of Jesus passed on by oral tradition. You might have a letter or two from Paul. That's about all you've got. So what did they do? How did they know what to believe without a Bible? Or all they had was an Old Testament. So just logically speaking, the church produced the Bible. And who decided what books would make the Bible? The church decided that. It wasn't, it wasn't God revealed in the sense of God wrote it on a tablet and showed us. Bishops gathered in council, and those bishops made a decision. In fact, we know in the early centuries of the church, uh, for almost the first 600 years, Different churches had different lists of what was the New and the Old Testament. We even know that the book of Revelation wasn't uh, uh, fully accepted until, I think it was the 6th or 7th century in the Byzantine Empire. Before that point, it was considered a controversial book, at least in Eastern churches, which is why probably to this day in the Orthodox Church, we still don't read it at any service. So it goes to show you, if, if this was such a self-evident thing that the Bible is divinely inspired— then why did all these churches disagree for hundreds of years on what the lists of the Bible were? And why did they not seem to care that other churches had different lists? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, a very good point. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of something where a big thing I, I noticed in myself is the more I delved into this church history, the more I was finding these orthodox positions and, and justifications for them. Um, but in the same vein and topic of justification, I wanted to talk about another um, doctrine that I think is consistent among Protestants. They just differ on how it's um, on what it means. And I think even us, we agree in some way. It's just how we justify, uh, like how we, phrase it is different and that is salvation through faith alone um and the concept of justification versus sanctification um yeah. because i think i think that's somewhere where protestants and catholics have you know come to a head a lot but in, i don't want to call us centrists in any way but sometimes it, it kind of feels like the orthodox position is like a compromise of those two and um and i think some of that might be because it is the true position, but 
Well, let me say, um, my understanding is that Catholics and Orthodox may not use the same language entirely, but they do typically agree on this issue. That's my understanding. Again, I can't speak for Catholics. So there are some areas I have studied, and I'll speak about those. But I hope you've seen so far, I try to admit, if I don't know, I'm just going to say I don't know. This is not an area where I've studied the difference between Catholics and Orthodox. I do know uh, Catholic or, uh, Protestant and Orthodox differences here a little bit more, because I used to be a Protestant, but not that long, but I used to be one. So I'll say first, Protestants are not of one mind on this issue, so it's already going to be hard to, <laughs> to explain it, because you have some Protestants who believe in what's called... Um, well, today it's called once saved, always saved, which is literally all that matters is faith. Works don't matter even slightly. Then you have Protestants who say um, uh, faith alone matters, but your faith should be producing works. And if it's not, it's not real faith. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that whole spectrum. So in the Orthodox Church, we would agree that salvation is by faith, not faith alone. No, not faith alone. But we do believe it's by faith, not by works, because no work of man can earn salvation. Um, but again, not faith alone, because that faith ought to produce works, and those works make faith alive and effective. So I'm going to quote to you the 1672 Council of Jerusalem. So again, if you think the church doesn't have councils anymore, it still does. This was our against Protestantism council, and I don't mean against Protestant people, no against Protestant theology. So this was called in Jerusalem in 1672 to respond, especially to Calvinism and Lutheranism. So uh, here's a direct quote from the council. We believe that no one can be saved without faith. By faith, we mean the right notion that is in us concerning God and divine things, which working by love, that is to say, by keeping the divine commandments, justifies us with Christ, and without this faith, it is impossible to please God. So notice the language of that. Faith is what saves us, but that faith uh, uh, works by love. So we, when we have faith, we will try to keep the commandments. We'll make an effort to actually obey Christ. That's what justifies us. So the effort is required, even if it's not what saves us. So let me, let me make a, an example of this. Let's say um, someone throws me a life preserver and I grab on. Well, that grabbing is a work, right? It's not enough for me to just say, I believe, if I, I believe that life preserver can save me. It's not enough to just believe that. It's not enough to even believe it with all of your heart. You have to do a work, which is hold on. And by, the act of grabbing is what will save you as, as well. So it's not simply enough knowing it will save you, but also doing the work it takes to accept that salvation. So there is an element of work that is required, even if we're not saved because of our works, right? That life preserver wasn't thrown to you because you're going to grab on. It's not like you merited being saved by grabbing, not at all. You're being saved because it's a gift. The person loves you and wants you to live. But you grab on anyway, even if the grabbing doesn't merit your salvation. Do you get the point that I'm trying to make here? I hope it's clear. Because many Protestants will say, when we talk about the role of works, that, oh, so you believe that we merit salvation in some way. Not at all. But it's just without work, then we, we uh, some work is required, even if works don't save us. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I yeah. I I think that is a very good way that uh explains that kind of position because um you know, we can look straight to the Bible um, you know, as we as Protestants often like to do and and see, you know, uh I believe it is in um Corinthians. I I can't remember where it's from, but uh faith without works is dead, I believe is the quote. Um, oh, that's James. Yep. Oh, James. That's yes, right. James. Yep. And you know, we do we do see this kind of thing that uh, faith is is a true position that one holds, and that actions are reflected by that that faith. And and that's always wow. something that that connected with me because I've always held to this belief, um, even as an atheist, that if you truly believe in something, your actions reflect that. And um, so I I think this came kind of naturally to me and is also just one that i think you could reason out pretty well uh, can i say uh, actually uh, on that line i'm sorry i i did interrupt you but i i, I want to say on that line if we compare it to a marriage it makes way more sense mm -hmm. um and it's exactly what you're expressing so what marriage is founded on works you know you have uh i know you're not married but can you imagine a a, a marriage that's based on Wow, they do so many nice things for me. Now I love them. I mean, usually that love starts kind of, you have this affection, this desire first. Works help build that up. But it's not just based on works. It's like you grow this relationship together, which we could call faith. It's this love, this commitment, this trust in one another, which is expressed through works. Does that mean that your relationship is based on actions? Hopefully not. It's hopefully based on love. But love is expressed through action. So action doesn't make the relationship, but the relationship will die without action. Right? If I just tell my wife, well, I love you. I don't really want to talk to you too much. I just want to love you. Or, you know, our relationship's going to die. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea, too, is that faith with God. It's like that, that love is the foundation, that trust in God is the foundation. That's really what faith means. It's a loving trust and assurance that God will pull us through. Um, that's how it's described in the book of Hebrews. Um, but that's a big conversation. Um, but works is what manifests that love. It's what makes it real and alive. So yeah, faith without works is dead. With works, then, faith is alive. Mm -hmm. Just like a relationship is alive with works. Any relationship. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... You certainly got into uh, the, the the general concept of, of what that is and gave a very apt uh, analogy to understand it. Um, and and I, I do think this is one of those positions where it is, you know, I believe the orthodox position and therefore I, I can't really reason being Protestant from that. Yeah. Um, though I'm sure some people might, uh, but... Another thing I wanted to get into is something that I know Protestants disagree and I think is a big separation um, between this concept of high churches and low churches, um, churches with the liturgy and without. And uh, that is the priesthood of all believers and the invisible church, um, which is a concept that is, I think, distinguishes Protestants from Orthodox the most 
specifically sure. when they're low church, uh, when they're a low church Protestant, like a Baptist or a Methodist. Um, well, even high church, by the way, I, I should say Luther taught that, um, or at least Lutherans teach. I don't know if Luther taught it himself, but for my research, Lutherans teach that a man is not ordained a pastor of a church. He is called out as a pastor of the church. Technically, he's not ordained because all of us are priests. So even that pastor is just a priest among other priests, but chosen to lead the congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and preside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think this gets into um I, I almost think that Sola Scriptura um may have come out of a belief out of this, out of this idea of the priesthood of all believers and the invisible church, because without it, you you don't you don't have that foundation for something else besides the bible so you really do need the bible to be the only thing if you're going to rip out this other foundation um so i kind of wanted to get into it and 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 talk about this concept of priesthood of all believers why we don't believe it and then also talk about what the concept of the invisible church and why we don't believe that yeah um all right so first priesthood of all believers i'll tell you um uh, Luther wrote a letter in 1520, I think, to the Christian nobility of of Germany or the German nation. Anyway, this work was about Luther wasn't making much headway in, in changing the Catholic Church uh, to to his viewpoints. So he was calling on Charles V, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and and a vast like worldwide empire, honestly saying, call a new ecumenical council. You don't need a pope to do it. All of us are popes. All of us are priests. The pope is as much of a priest as you are, and you can be like our new Constantine. Call a new council. Um, so uh, Luther had... Uh, there's there's a political aspect to it. I'm not trying to boil it down to mere politics. That's not fair. Um, but there was a political aspect to it. Um, but I'll say this. He based it off of 1 Peter 2.5. It says this. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that reference makes it sound like Peter is saying all Christians are priests. Now, we first need to ask, what is a priest? A priest is someone who offers up, who sacrifices. That is the most primal understanding in any nation of what a priest does. They kill things and offer them to a deity. Or they offer barley or, or wheat or whatever to a deity. So a priest is primarily a sacrificer. So all of us are called to offer sacrifice. Now Luther's point was, therefore we can all offer sacrifice like the Eucharist. All of us are able to do such a thing. Now, I'll say that if you take Peter at surface level, sure, it looks like what Luther's saying. But Peter is actually referencing the Old Testament here. That's what I find kind of, it, this is one of those arguments of Luther that I, I mean, I can't judge the man, but I am slightly judging him, and that's bad of me, but I find it a little disingenuous, because he's quoting Exodus. It's Exodus 19.6. It says this, and this is the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel, not us, Israel, historical Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, um, 
this is obviously the reference he's speaking of here. And he says, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So only one tribe of Israel, though, was uh, had priests. That was Levi. So wait, I thought they were a kingdom of priests. Well, apparently only one uh, uh, tribe of the 12 had any priests whatsoever, and then only one family of that one tribe. So the point is, there's a difference between a general sense of being a priest, like all of us are called to offer up our lives, our, our finances, our abilities, our time. We're called to offer all that up to God. Our thoughts are everything. Um, but then there are other kinds of priests, like myself, I'm a priest, called to offer sacraments, like the Eucharist. That is something you can't offer. I can't. God has not authorized you to do so. He's authorized me to do so. So Luther's argument is, honestly, I would say, based on a faulty understanding of the New Testament. It's funny because the idea of only certain people being able to offer the Eucharist goes all the way back to Ignatius of Antioch in the year 110. That's how early it is. And he says, let no Eucharist, I, I, this is almost a direct quote, but I don't have it written down. I have uh, these other references I wrote down. He says, let no Eucharist be considered valid except that which is presided over by a bishop or the agent whom he appoints, obviously meaning a priest. So, and, and he says, no Eucharist should be considered valid so if a layperson does it by Ignatius's logic, it's not a valid Eucharist. So right there, Ignatius is showing there's a special priesthood in the church as early as 110 AD. You're telling me that the Apostle John, who even Protestants agree, probably died in 90 AD. 20 years later, the church started changing its teaching to now only certain people are priests and not everybody else? Give me a break. I always think the argument is kind of silly to say that Martin Luther was more successful than Jesus Christ and his apostles. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think that we, we clearly see this, this differentiation. I mean, even look at the apostles themselves. There were many disciples of Christ, but there were a special 12, and then yeah. you had the special... Um, I think it's somewhere around 70 that it also talks about. Um, but then there were other believers, but they weren't they weren't considered a part of the the status of apostle, which was they gave special abilities uh, or, or um, I don't know if abilities is the right word, but special privileges and things. And, and Christ gave them to him, such as healing right. the sick. And so I, I, I think it's it's kind of weird to say that we are all this kind of priest and that the, the only distinction between me and say you is that you were elected to lead the, it, you lead this specific church. Um, when that's not the distinguishing factor, even in, um, in the Bible, there are, there are many right. others. And then right. as you mentioned, St. Ignatius of Antioch. And, um, I, I'm glad you brought up, uh, the point about you know Martin Luther was better at teaching his disciples than than Christ, because I think for us, especially low low church Protestants, it's it's hard to reconcile this idea that the church kind of almost immediately fell away in a lot of ways, um, because the earliest that we have really good records of is Saint Ignatius of Antioch, and I do not see 
Protestant. He's one of the first church fathers we have records of, and he was a disciple of John the Apostle. Yeah. He sat at his feet and learned from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I, I wanted to go into um, now the invisible church concept because I think this one is one that is kind of when this idea came about, I think it's the reason that the spurious that we see that there are so many Protestant denominations because there is no real concept of this concrete church. It is very um, different. And um, I kind of wanted to get into that, what that means and uh, why that's so problematic from the Orthodox view. So I'm not well researched into the origin of this doctrine in the Protestant world. I can only tell you my experience of it when I was Protestant very briefly. Um, again, I was only Protestant for two years. Uh, I, I've been Orthodox almost uh, well over half my life. So, um, right? No, a little less than half my life. I lied to you. Anyway, so the Protestant idea of the invisible church is basically that the body of Christ is a symbolic body. It's a spiritual body that all of us, by belief in Christ, are members of his church. Now, interestingly, I mean, I, I could see how you could get that from the Bible if you just take it as a metaphor. But we Orthodox concretely connect the visible church, the idea of the, the church as the body of Christ, with the reception of his body and blood. So when we receive his body and blood, we are made one body with Christ and with each other. That's why we say we are the body of Christ. We mean that in a very literal sense. His flesh and blood abides within us. We have become one with God. Not fully. We don't lose who we are. But who we are has some, somehow somewhat fused with God without losing its distinctiveness as being a, a human being. Um. And we call that a union with his uh, divine energies, which is highfalutin, but I know you asked me to talk about that at some point, so I thought I'd use the term. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that there is a union with God on an essential level through partaking of Holy Communion. So the Protestant world reduces it all, and I, I wouldn't say all the Protestant world, some of it reduces this to, we are, if we're a believer in Christ, we're all part of the church together. Yeah, I I think you definitely got um <clears throat> I think you definitely got what invisible church kind of is. Um but but a, a problem I've always had with this invisible church concept is you know, getting into what did Christ mean when he said the church was founded upon um this rock, Peter, which is 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 a big verse in co um in contention even with Roman Catholicism about what that means, yeah. but to me, I, 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 what is this church? Uh, if it's an invisible church, what did he mean when he said Peter was the rock? And right. and so, and I think that kind of comes from where the Orthodox position, why we reject it. Um, so I kind of wanted to to, to emphasize or um, reiterate on that and and why the what the orthodox position is and why it is so vastly different and and why this is so such a problematic thing well i i think for us the main issue is in the protestant world the church is kind of a reduced status it's not the most essential aspect of what it is to follow god 
It's just kind of like this invisible connection that connects us all. It's the Holy Spirit who unites us all in this mystical thing called the church. Now, we have a similar idea, but the church itself, we believe, is perfect. And the church, uh, yes, it is this, it is, well, it's a visible and an invisible. So we do believe in the invisible church in a way. Um, it is a connection between all of those within God's church, which we would call the Orthodox Church. But it has at its head Jesus Christ. And the church, as I, I just mentioned in a, a quote from, what was it, uh, uh, 1 Timothy earlier, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the church of the living God is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So the church is not just simply a connection, like a name for a connection. It is a living thing um, that God directly leads, that connects all of us who are in the Orthodox Church to lead us into all truth. So. It's not possible to have separated from the church and at the same time claim to be part of it. Um, the church is a historical organization. It is the Orthodox Church descended from the apostles. And if you leave that church, you no longer are part of it. Um, I don't know if that answers your question quite. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we do believe that doctrine and unity is very important of being actual, actually part of the church. So... When, when other Christians and Orthodox discuss, what would it take to make us one? Um, possibly a Protestant might say, we're already one. We could just agree more on doctrine. The Orthodox would say, you have to become Orthodox for us to be one, because we are the only church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very good summary of, of, that, of the position. Um, it really distinguishes that while there is this also invisible connection that connects us to Christ and, and and connects us to each other there is this actual visible authority that is called the church that has existed and has an unbroken line and I'm sure we'll get into that um, when I talk about it apostolic succession um, but I, I think that this is certainly where there is that biggest divide um, between us and, and Protestants in just our way of thinking as well. Um, For sure. Yeah. The role of the church is a huge difference. Yep. But yeah. And, but I, I think we've spent a lot of time talking about the differences between orthodoxy and other denominations. And I think we've established a lot of orthodox doctrine in doing so, but I want to talk about really the orthodox view and, and get more into that. Um, and talk more about some specific doctrines um, and, and practices that we have. And I think the first one is talking about what is the center of, of, of Christianity, the center of Orthodox Christianity, and that is Christ himself. And that is, why did Christ incarnate himself as a human? Why was he crucified? And what is the importance of his resurrection? Sure. All right, so... Um... We believe that Christ became incarnate. Uh, the main reason is because whatever God does not assume cannot be healed. So, how do I make this a little simpler? Um, Christ had to take on the entirety of humanity in order to heal the entirety of what it is to be a human being. He became like us in body and soul, in being born, in dying, so that all aspects of human life could be deified and sanctified. St. Athanasius the Great actually says, it's a very common quote in Orthodox Church, 
God became man that we might become God. This comes from his On the Incarnation, which is a very famous work. By the way, you can get a copy of it from St. Vlad's Press, and the foreword is written by C.S. Lewis, um, because he also loved this book. Um, but yeah, his becoming man enables us to become divine, to be filled with the grace of God, to be deified. So if he had not become man fully, we cannot become like God fully. So his incarnation became like, you know, a Venn diagram. You got two circles that come on each, uh, come together. So God is over here, man is here, and they came together in Christ right there in the middle of the Venn diagram. So now that man can pass over to being who God is. That was not possible before his incarnation. His crucifixion put an end to, to sin, but it put sin to death. It condemned death in Christ. And uh, as the, the scriptures and the fathers say, it ransomed us from death and from sin. So that's St. Basil the Great says this is in his anaphora. He says, we were held captive, sold under sin, and that Christ ransomed us from that death. He ransomed us from death. So all of us due to sin are condemned to death. Even those of us who haven't sinned yet, even infants are condemned to death, not due to a sin of their own, not because they are guilty, but because of inheriting that disease of Adam, that original sin we spoke about. So all of us are cursed with this disease, and this disease causes us to die, and it causes us to suffer, and it causes us to want to sin. But Christ paid the ransom to death. He redeemed us. So if we accept that salvation, he redeems us from that curse and from all the sins we have committed even after that curse and all the sins that we will commit in the future if we continue to follow him. Uh, now, the resurrection put an utter end to death because now death had killed God and had killed one who was truly sinless and innocent in every single way, in every meaningful way, not even subject to the curse of ancestral sin or the original sin like all of us are. So death became guilty of murder, you could say. So death was put to death. That's why we, you know, the Paschal Troparian, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. So by dying, he killed death. By rising from the dead, he utterly destroyed its power. He destroyed the power of the devil and enabled all mankind to rise with him one day at his second coming. So right now, death temporarily still reigns, right? Because we die. But when we die, now we can be in paradise with Christ. And on the last day, we rise again with him. So death has ultimately been defeated, even if in the little skirmishes that happen in life, death still wins temporarily. Um, so this is all by the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that really puts... Um it in a neat way of, of the centrality because, you know, there's sometimes I, I think by Protestants, um, I have seen this accusation labeled that, you know, Christ is not at the center of your religion um, and, and what you believe. But I, I, I truly, you know, I, I see it in, especially in this explanation and just how important and how much we stress that what Christ did and, and why it matters. And, um, so, yeah, like, how much have we even talked about saints this thus far? Yeah, we haven't right. talked about them almost at all. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have actually, because the the saints are are uh, a secondary aspect to our faith. They're important, but they're very much secondary, and they would be the first to admit 
he must increase and we must decrease, like St. John the Baptist said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's all about Christ. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that accusation is based on a surface-level understanding of what we believe and teach, yeah. how we worship in church. But listen to the words in church, even. How much of it is about the saints? Very, very little. Um, the Mother of God is referenced periodically during the liturgy. It's almost entirely about Christ. Almost nothing is about the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you definitely see that. And that, that's something where I will say, and this is the first time I'll say it, but I'm sure we'll say it later on, um, is that why it's so important to experience a divine liturgy, because you really do see that centrality and, and the focus on Christ's incarnation, his sacrifice in the crucifixion and his resurrection. Yeah. Um, but departuring a tiny bit from Christ himself, I want to talk about his apostles, specifically what they established in this line that we call apostolic succession. And um, what I, I would call a proof of the church. And, and um, well, sure, this, it is. Yes. And I wanted to ask, you know, what is this for, for people who don't know what it is? And how do we know who has it? Um, sure. So apostolic succession, um, it was first articulated, as I understand it, by St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who's like the spiritual grandson of John the Apostle. So John, remember mentioning he had a disciple Ignatius. He also had a disciple Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is the spiritual grandson of John the Apostle. And Irenaeus spoke about uh, apostolic succession as the guarantor for what church and what faith is the true faith when it comes to all the various Christian groups in his day. He was speaking in the context of Gnosticism, which was radically different than what we teach, uh, and Protestants too, radically different than even Protestantism. So there's two kinds of apostolic succession. One is uh, um, succession of ordination, and one is succession of teaching. It's the same idea. It's just two different aspects of it. So by ordination, it's, the Apostle John ordained Polycarp. Polycarp ordained Ignatius. Ignatius ordained, etc., etc. That all the apostles ordained their successors, and their successors ordained their own successors up to our own day. So that every Orthodox bishop traces their lineage back to the apostles through the laying on of hands through ordination. So that succession continues to pass on generation after generation. Now, priests have this in a lesser sense. As a priest, you are ordained by a bishop who has been ordained by a bishop. So I bear, in a sense, apostolic succession, but I can't pass it along. As a priest, I am not authorized by the church to pass along that grace to the next generation. Only a bishop can. Um, now, the second aspect, and this is the most important aspect, I, as I understand it for Irenaeus, was the succession that comes from uh, apostolic teaching, that the teaching is passed on generation after generation without error, without change, without supplementation, without subtraction. So that is also preserved. Now we might ask, uh, and this is a controversial issue even in the Orthodox world, do other churches have apostolic succession and valid you know, priesthood and all this? Some Orthodox say yes and some say no at least in our own time. Um, I would rather not get stuck in the, the 
details of that because it's a controversy in our own time in our church. Well, I don't, I don't want to say controversy like it's some massive issue. It's just an issue that goes on between Orthodox Christians who otherwise, I hope, get along very well. Um, but this idea of do, do Roman Catholic bishops, for example, have apostolic succession? Some might say they do when it comes to that grace of ordination, but they do not when it comes to teaching. Other Orthodox would say they don't have any apostolic succession whatsoever. They're not even real bishops. Um, I would prefer not to get in the hedges on this issue personally. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely think um, answering the question of who has it, it uh, is, is one that is a little harder. Uh, and, and I'll say we have it. I yeah. should say that. Yeah, we definitely have it. Um, Do other churches have it? Not as assured. But I, I think the way you described it, it's it's one where I think one can clearly kind of if they if they observe it and take in on the information can see who doesn't and do, does it'll still be up for debate um but i think that for us it's very clear we have it and um one at one of those ways that i i remember kind of seeing that is um i remember there was a protestant pastor who said you know the the churches that St. Paul and, and the other saints wrote their epistles to are long gone and decayed, um, but there's still bishops at those churches, actually. And I saw that they were Orthodox and um, that those, those same churches still exist and um, still have those things from the apostles and, and oh, yeah. can, can trace their direct line yeah. back to them. Yep. Um, and that was something that, you know, it was, it was like, well, that's that's so weird. We, I mean, we have people who are descendants of the apostles in this way, and and the churches that they sat at. But yet there's all this confusion about it. And um, I think apostol the concept of apostolic succession is the only way by which we can um, understand that. Yeah, um, yeah. But I I wanted to get into a specific practice that uh, I think distinguishes orthodoxy a lot. From even I think Roman starting especially now, Roman Catholicism, um, and that is the concept of iconography. Now I, I think Roman Catholics and even some Protestants still have this kind of concept of of images and, and depictions of of Christ and even his saints. Um, but when you go into an Orthodox church, it is distinct from other churches because there are so many on the walls. Um, of Christ himself, of events that happened in the Bible, or um, his saints, you know, um, all the way up to saints that, you know, lived even just decades ago. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about and ask, like, why do we have these? What, what is the point of these? And um, why isn't it the case that this is some kind of form of idolatry, as, as some would yeah. say it is? Sure. Um, well, first we have to ask, what does the word pray mean? I think, you know, essential to uh, answering this question is, let's break down the actual meaning of the words we're using. What does pray mean? Historically, the word pray means to ask. We know this because if any of us want to quote like Shakespearean English, we'll say, I pray thee, right? Anyone who jokes around says, I pray thee, get me a dish or something like that. Uh, it means I ask. So praying means asking. 
in modern times, we've changed the word to mean speaking to a deity. So, right, if that's how we spoke to saints as to deities, that would be idolatry, wouldn't it? But we don't. We don't believe saints are deities. So we are asking the saints. We do converse with the saints, too. It's not just simply asking. Um, like we have what's called the Akathis to the Theotokos, which is a service where we praise. We even offer praises for the, the mother of God. Um, so I'll say this again. First, number one, prayer doesn't just mean speaking to a deity. Um, but number two is the only issue that Protestants, in my opinion, really have is that the saints are dead. So think uh, if I'm sure if a Protestant is listening now, they, they heard you have a service to Mary and you praise her during it. Well, I mean, let's say that you had a pastor of distinction, not even a pastor. It could be anybody. And on their 50th year, you have a celebration where you have a uh, this this grand banquet where they're being praised, publicly lauded, given awards and trophies. Well, is that idolatry for being honored publicly? How's that idolatry? We're supposed to honor one another. St. Paul says, outdo one another in honor. That's right from the scriptures. So it's our job to outdo one another in honor. So to honor the saints, just, just because they're dead doesn't mean it's idolatry. If they're alive, it's not idolatry. If they're dead, it's not idolatry either. So really, I think Protestants have to think that sometimes the idea of them being dead is what makes them feel like this is idolatry. Just imagine they're alive and it's not anymore. Um, for example, asking the saints to pray for us, asking them to help us by their prayers. This comes back to James where he says the prayer of a righteous man is to great effect. I think that's James 5.16 actually. Well, if that's true about people who are alive, why isn't it true of people who are dead that we know are with Christ? So I think then the last issue might come up is, well, we're not supposed to talk to the dead. Necromancy is condemned in the Old Testament. And that is true. Necromancy is condemned. But what is necromancy? It is pagan rituals to summon the souls of the dead. Well, of course, it's a pagan ritual. We're not using pagan ritual. We're simply praying to the dead. You know what? This is another thing where the Jews agree with us. They have a practice where they honor what's called the tzadakim, which means the righteous. They go to the graves of the righteous dead and they offer prayers at their graves. Even the Jews do that. And they don't believe in necromancy either. So um, we have to be clear here. Just because they're dead doesn't mean it's wrong to ask them for their prayers or to even praise them. Um and just because necromancy is condemned doesn't mean speaking to the saints is a form of necromancy. The onus is on the person with the accusation to show that necromancy is the same thing. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying there? Yes. If you think it's necromancy, you need to prove it's necromancy. What is pagan about it? How is it a pagan ritual? Yeah. That's I, like I, saying that's like saying in the Old Testament, don't worship a false god. Well, then we shouldn't worship the true God either, because that's just another form of pagan worship. That's baloney. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying there? Just because the pagan version is condemned doesn't mean there isn't a good version of it, right? Pagan sacrifice in the Old Testament. Can you partake of a pagan sacrifice? Of course you can't, but you can partake of a, of a godly sacrifice in the same way. You can't participate in pagan necromancy, but you can certainly, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, speak to those who have died in Christ and ask for their prayers. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what the proof is? I'm sorry, can I tell you yeah, what yeah. the proof is? 
Christ on Mount Tabor, uh, well, the Bible doesn't say it's Mount Tabor, but when he was transfigured on the mountain, who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah, and they were speaking to him. Moses was dead, but Christ spoke with him. Aren't we supposed to imitate Christ? Well, Christ spoke to a dead man on the mountain. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I oh, think. Sorry, go ahead. I think you got uh, a very good explanation of, of of why we we have this communion of the saints and and um, pray to the saints um, and and this distinguishment because I think a lot of people forget kind of what is at the core of prayer is that it is a conversation and um, that it isn't specifically something we do to deities um, you know worship is something we do to deity prayer is is can be a form of worship but it depends on the context and um yeah yeah but i think something that does that that they'll start to go well here's how it's pagan is you have icons you have images of of those saints oh, i forgot about that part yeah and and so that's kind of where i wanted to talk about the the that role because that is something that is you know um while roman catholics don't reject icons um even they they don't have icons as 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 spread out and and, and as uh, immaculate as most orthodox churches will and and have them so in in such a um central role in the worship that go that takes place and i wanted to ask about that why that is and um why it's not the same as as the idolatry that is condemned in in the bible in the old testament specifically so let me first say as i understand it catholics and orthodox agree entirely yes. on the role of imagery and they use statuary typically and historically orthodox used to they don't as much anymore i've heard some orthodox say well you can't use statues those are more like idols there's a long history of orthodox statuary it's just not very it's not a common style anymore. Um, but there's a miracle-working statue of St. Michael in Serbia, I believe. It's a statue. Anyway, and it's, an or it's like 600 years old, and it's orthodox. Anyway, that aside, yes, the prohibition on uh, the worship of images in the Ten Commandments, um, yes, this is in the Old Testament. But we forget the same God who said that also ordered the temple, in the temple, or the tabernacle, really, in the tabernacle in Exodus, that the curtains of the temple be woven with the images of angels. And then he said that the Ark of the Covenant, the very center of Israelite worship, which is basically an icon, it's a box that on the top had two cherubim with their wings spread out. Well, the Lord said in the Ten Commandments, depict nothing, either in heaven above, well, those are two things that the Lord ordered to be depicted from heaven above. So why is the Lord speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Because the point is, again, the pagan version is rejected, but there is a good version which is not. If you also want to do some research, look up the Dura Europa Synagogue, which is in modern Iraq, I believe. It is, uh, it is a fully uh, intact, well, not. I don't want to say fully intact, it is a fairly intact synagogue from the third century AD. In this and there's also a church there too. And in both the church and the synagogue, they are absolutely covered in frescoes all across the walls of biblical scenes and different Old Testament figures and saints. 
Um, so definitely, uh, you know, we we sometimes say, well, the Jews never used imagery. I mean, the Dura Europa Synagogue shows that that's not true. It may not be that all Jews did that, but some Jews definitely did. And they put a lot of money into doing it. And Christians did it too in the early centuries. I know that as well. I went to Rome in 2019. I went in the Catacomb of Priscilla, which has icons in it dating from 200 AD. Some of the oldest icons known in the world. They depicted Christ in a Roman toga with a sheep on his shoulders. He's clean shaven like a Roman citizen with a sheep on his shoulders. They had the Theotokos holding the infant Christ. Daniel, uh, 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 they had the three ewes in the furnace. They even had scenes from the Apocrypha, like Bell and the Dragon and uh, the story of Susanna on the walls as well. So uh, the reason I say this is it's all Judaism had it historically. It doesn't mean all Jews had it. Christians had it historically as well. So the point is in the Old Testament, Christ wasn't, I mean, uh, well, it was Christ, but the, God wasn't contradicting himself. He was rejecting pagan forms of worship of images but accepting that there is a good form of image use within the synagogue, or I'm sorry, the temple. It wasn't the synagogue then. Um, so we maintain that tradition that there is a good form of use of images in the church, and we don't worship them, we venerate them. Now I should say this, that's the second issue. Well, why venerate? Because arguably, maybe the Jews only use these images just to look at, not to kiss or bow down before. Well, I can tell you in Jewish tradition, at least, I looked this up some years ago. According to Jewish tradition, people used to bow down before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a created thing. It was an icon upon which the Father sat. God, well, the Trinity sat. Um, when it was treated with irreverence, people died. Remember Uzzah? I think it was Uzzah is his name. The Ark was falling. He caught it with his hands, and he died on the spot. Um because that object, even though it was just an object, had been filled with the power of God, and the object itself became an object of veneration and holiness. So that's what I would say, is that icons, in lesser ways, are like the Ark. They're holy objects that connect us to those who are depicted, and they're described at the Seventh Ecumenical Council as windows to heaven, that they help teach uh, heavenly realities, but also that by depicting holy things, they convey grace to us. Just like the Bible. The Bible is an icon in written form. An icon is in pictorial form. But they both bestow grace. Even the physical object bestows grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a very good, succinct explanation of iconography and their role in in worship and kind of like what we use them for um but i do actually want to step back a little bit to the communion of saints and talking about that because we mentioned mary quite a bit uh and i think we should talk about mary in the sense that because just like roman catholics we do have mary on this elevator i i have seen mary called the chief among saints um, Ark of the New Covenant, and yep. and what do these things mean, and and what is Mary's role uh, in the context of the church and 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 our theology? Yeah. Um. So let me first say that yes, we do consider the Mother of God, Mary, to be the greatest of all the saints. Um. We should know that this honor 
I mean, well, calling him the greatest of all the saints is not an honor said in the scriptures explicitly, but honor given to her is shown first in Luke chapter 3. Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said to, the, to Mary, why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She didn't say, why is it that, that, that my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. And it said she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired her to say this. And then Mary gave the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Later on, she said, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. So we, we do call her blessed and we bless her. We consider her the greatest of all the saints because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't know many people who gave birth to God. I don't know many people who conceived God in the flesh, who were considered worthy enough to become a new Ark of the Covenant, a new mercy seat. Um, right, the mercy seat was the, the object upon which the Trinity rested in the tabernacle. Well, Mary, uh, 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 in her womb, rested the Son of God, rested God himself. Um, she contained the uncontainable in her the fullness of the Godhead was received, right? Now, we, we, we know that because Paul calls Christ the fullness of the Godhead uh, uh, bodily. Um, well, that fullness was within her. That's why we also call her more, more spacious than the heavens, because her womb became more spacious than the heavens. Even heaven itself can't contain God, but her womb contained the fullness of God. So, of course, we honor her. That's why she's the greatest of all the saints, and anyway, you have to think, uh, um, if you can't speak to a king, who do you speak to next? And of course, we can speak to our king. We can always speak to Christ. But who can we speak to who will pull his ear also, his mother? So we speak to our king's mother. The queen mother has a lot of say when it comes to Christ. Think of this at the wedding of Cana in Galilee in um, John chapter 3. No, is it? Wait, I don't remember what chapter of John. I didn't write notes on this part. I, I believe um, it is John. By the way, er, yeah, I know it's John. It's early on yeah. in John. I know that. So early on in John, they're at a wedding, and Mary says, uh, um, uh, son, they're out of wine. And the Lord says, what is that to us? <laughs> um, and then he basically ignores him. I mean, it's not clear from the text she, she ignores him, but I'm just saying for dramatic effect. She just bypasses what he said, turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And then despite the fact that he said he wasn't going to do it, he does it anyway. Yeah. He says, woman, is not yet my time. That's what he says. I'm sorry, I misquoted that. See, I didn't write my references for this question. Um, um, but she, she says, do whatever he tells you, and he does it anyway. So that's how much, how much sway she has with her son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, definitely the the wedding of galilee is is definitely an area where i see mary's authority coming out um and also i think contributes to this thing that i i, I saw a lot in my own path of to orthodoxy and then that is um the power of the prayer of the mother of god um and why we would pray to her in the first place and and i think that is at the end of the day because they're so powerful because she is the mother of God, because, you know, as God says, um, we are to honor thy mother and father and God is no hypocrite. Uh, God is not yeah. someone who doesn't 
uh, follow by his own rules, even though he's not bound by them. Correct. So uh, I definitely think that that this position that we have on Mary is is one that is not only extremely biblical, but definitely something we see in the early church. And um, I think it is is a, a especially convincing position. Um, but I think it's one that can easily get misinterpreted and why we've seen, you know, Protestants who go, well, you elevate her to the, 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 the to the position of deity, which, you know, is obviously not true. Right. Um, right. But I, I wanted to get into yeah. as another topic on, on doctrine. I, this is probably the most esoteric, I think, of the Orthodox um, kind of positions. But it's something that I, I, I see people ask a lot about, especially when it comes to um, doctrines that they want to know more about that they don't know when it comes to Orthodoxy. And that is this concept of essence energies distinction, um, which you referenced a little bit earlier. But um, yeah, that's highfalutin stuff for here. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it, but it's something that uh, you know um, people asked about when I when I asked them what did they want to know from you, and yeah. um, what is this essence energies distinction? Because it's something that I still have have been struggling to completely understand. Um, Me too. I, I I still struggle with it as well. Um, I can give you a very uneducated um well i wouldn't i don't want to say uneducated that's making myself sound like an idiot i know i'm not an idiot but <laughs> uh at least i hope so but i can't say that i'm an expert on this i can just tell you the best explanation that i know of well first we should talk about the reason why this is a, this is actually a, an issue where we disagree with roman catholics they don't accept this distinction and that's actually the historical reason why it arose in the 1300s in uh constantinople Marlam of Calabria, Calabria, southern Italy. At that time, it used to be very orthodox. Actually, until the 1700s, there were native orthodox in southern Italy. Um, but they were gradually Catholicized. So he, coming from southern Italy, was lightly Catholicized, but he was still orthodox. He came to visit um, Constantinople, and he was shocked to find these people claiming that they could see the uncreated light of Christ when they were in prayer. And so... Barlam thought this was an innovation. Uh, he was very much an Augustinian because St. Augustine actually said that, um, uh, I actually have this quoted somewhere because in seminary we all had to write papers on this exact topic. So this is one time, like, I can actually talk about this because I wrote about it, but it was 10 years ago, honestly. Um, but Augustine actually taught that prophets don't know God as well as philosophers because logic is higher than experience. Um so we Orthodox do reject this, but also uh, in, in the Catholic Church, they were teaching, and they still do teach, um, that God cannot be held, or I'll say this, Catholics watching, of course, can correct me. I might be wrong. I don't want to speak for Catholicism, but as I understand it, Catholics teach that God cannot be beheld directly in this life. Um, he can be beheld in the afterlife, in the beatific vision, so the way that we experience God in this life is through uh, created grace, like this created intermediary. Now, this is not Catholic dogma, as I understand it, but it is commonly believed in the Catholic Church. Created intermediaries that mediate between the divinity and, and the created world that we experience. And I think this comes from Augustine himself. 
Um, anyway, um, we Orthodox believe that we can know God and experience God directly in his energies, but not in his essence. You might think, what does that even mean? Now, the word energy uh, can mean act. So I like to interpret it that way, his essence and his acts. So let's put it in more human terms, like Peyton, you and I have known each other now for a while. So we experience each other directly, don't we? Like we talk to each other, we look at each other face to face, we're in the same room, we get a sense of each other. We um, So in a, in a way that we can unite in a face to face level. Or think of a husband and wife, they can unite also like on a, on a marital level, on a corporal level even, that obviously other people don't. So there's this kind of union that can take place, um, but it's still on an energy level. It's in an act level, right? I can't jump into your mind and think your thoughts. I can't experience your experiences. I, don't, I can't experience the, the cell division inside of you. Um, or the feeling you get when you break your bone. I can empathize, but I can't ex experience it directly. So in a similar way, I'm not going to say the same way, in a similar way as I understand it, that's the distinction when it comes to our experience of God, that there is a part of God, and we can't split up God into parts, of course. He's not like this thing we can analyze, but there's an aspect of God that is forever mystery. God is infinite mystery. But there's also an aspect of God which is understandable to a degree and to which we can unite. So we say like in communion, we unite to the energies of God. So what are the energies like love, grace, um, his presence? These are energies of God. Um, so this is why we also say in our vision of heaven, God will forever be mystery, but forever be more and more discoverable at the same time. Infinitely discoverable infinitely unknowable all at once yeah that's why for us heaven is not a static state it's a state of constant growth okay yeah yeah i i, I think i think that that is a an explanation that one can at least know on the surface what energy's essence distinction is yeah and i think I think uh, it's definitely a topic that one would have to dive into more that I think, um, you know, we, we, we would be here all day if, if we dived into it um, more. And I don't want to make this an episode about essence energies distinction. This is about orthodoxy in general. Also not a scholar. So that's the thing, <laughs> like me talking about it in detail, I'm very likely to mess it up and I'm being sincere. Mm -hmm. I, I mean that like that um, I'm willing to talk more about stuff that I've studied this is not something, I mean, I did write a paper on it, of course, but 10 years ago, but I'm not as familiar with all the arguments surrounding this distinction. Mm -hmm. um, so I've explained it as I understand it. I wouldn't want to go beyond that personally, or I would get lost and I would probably start saying really wacky stuff if I haven't already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think we've covered a lot of the ground of, of kind of what does it do orthodox people believe and even practices of orthodoxy and i think just from that i think there's definitely going to be people who who listen to this and they say wow you know that's neat um i'm kind of convinced maybe i'm even convinced by a lot of these positions but i'm definitely somewhat interested and you know from that perspective as somebody who may be interested in that you know what what's next what do i do 
as a person, you know, how do I, how do I, what are the practical things I should do if I'm interested in learning more or, um, even getting involved in eventually converting, you know, what should I do? Yep. The most important thing I would emphasize more than anything else, absolutely anything is go to an Orthodox church. Don't hang out online with a bunch of uh, people that you've never met. Uh, don't learn all of your orthodoxy uh, months and years before you step foot in a church. That's baloney. It's all just head knowledge. It doesn't help you. It doesn't. It doesn't. And in fact, it makes you worse. Um, it's like when Christ said that the Pharisees would cross land and sea to convert one convert and make them twice as much a son of hell as themselves. That. If, if you keep this orthodoxy as an intellectual internet thing, it's very toxic. Um, it's not helpful. You need to go to a church. That's the first thing you should do, in fact. Go to church. Go find a local orthodox church. Now, as a priest of the OCA, I'm very loyal to my church. I would say the OCA is my favorite jurisdiction. If you have an OCA church, orthodox church in America, I would go there. Um, or if not... Any Orthodox church is absolutely fine. I would recommend go on the website. It's orthodoxyinamerica.org. I think that website is still active. I'm pretty sure. Um, and it has a list of all the major jurisdictions. That's national Orthodox churches in this country and where their parishes are located. You enter your zip code, tells you all the churches in your area. So I would highly recommend that. Mm -hmm. um, I what, One thing I do, again, tooting our own horn for the OCA, uh, while there are ethnic parishes, the OCA typically is, is a lot more willing to accept converts and is much more American and convert focused. Not to say other jurisdictions are not as well. I, I No, by no means. I, there, other jurisdictions are wonderful. It's just, as a whole, the OCA is typically very convert friendly. So I would highly recommend it. Another jurisdiction that I know of that's pretty convert-friendly is the Antiochians. Um, now, I don't want to keep going on that, actually, because then it's going to be like Father Matt's uh, 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 list of jurisdictions he prefers, and that that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. So just, I like the OCA, okay? The OCA is great. But all Orthodox jurisdiction, jurisdictions will get you what you're looking for. Um, just know in some ethnic churches, priests may not be used to converts, and they may not know exactly where you're coming from. They may not even know much about Protestantism or Catholicism or atheism or whatever you're coming from. So you have to be patient with maybe an ethnic priest, but a lot of priests are pretty educated and know this stuff. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, go to an Orthodox church and talk to a priest. You need to form a relationship with a priest is your primary goal. That priest would function as the one who receives you into the church. He'd function as your confessor, God willing, one day. Um, he'd function as maybe your catechist, or he would find someone else to catechize you, to teach you the faith. But yeah, this faith is incarnational. It's face-to-face. -face. You need that connection with a priest, not with a bunch of guys online. Which, I mean, that's okay. You can do that too. But the primary thing is a priest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad how much you're stressing um, this like in-person thing, because... As we've talked a lot about, you know, these intellectual and understanding the theology and, and the church, um, while I would never say it doesn't matter, it is secondary to this living of the faith. And, and I, um, that I think is, is something that orthodoxy stresses a lot and something that always 
appealed me to it. But early in my journey, as you know, and as some watching may know, I, I was not that way. I was exactly the way that you, you warn against. Don't don't go online and feel the, and try to learn this orthodoxy before you come to it. Because you really, you really will. You'll, you'll be missing out on the experience that it is. Because this is an experience-based faith. And, and, and there is a, a coming to God. And, and part of that coming to God is actually, you know, exper- is, is doing out these things that we talked about. It is prayer, fasting, attending church, almsgiving. All these things. These are things that are acts of faith. They are um that um but i wanted to briefly address too because we did just mention that in america we do have a few choices in in sense we have the orthodox church of america the greek church antiochian and um these are all churches in communion with the the greater orthodox catholic church um but people often ask well which orthodoxy should I address and, and why is this the case? So I guess just to, to clear that confusion up for some people, just a, a brief explanation of what this situation is and, and what it really means. Um, I'll, I'll try to just say it quickly. The, the, so the Orthodox Church in America, and I don't mean my jurisdiction, I mean literally all the Orthodox churches in America are split up into... Well, I don't want to say split up. That's not the right word either. But they're distinct in like uh, uh, a number of jurisdictions. Greek Orthodox. There's two Russian Orthodox churches in America. There's the OCA that I mentioned. Antiochians. They're based in the Middle East. And most of them are churches that were founded by immigrants in order to maintain a a connection with their, their homeland. Um, so the Russians want Russian bishops. The Greeks want Greek bishops. So that's typically how the situation uh, developed in America. Um, all of us are in union with each other. We commune together. Uh, there are some issues that come up time and, and you know time and again that that do divide, but as a whole, we are united. And our services are different, and our style is different, but the faith is exactly the same wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would emphasize that all those churches are in unity, even if administratively they are not, and ethnically they are diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I, 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 I think it is somewhat a confusion of people. They say, well, I have a Greek church in my town, but I also have a Russian church. And uh, you're like, why do I have these options? And it is a very unique American experience um while there are other countries where you'll see two jurisdictions like australia is a good example where it's divided between the greeks and the russians um really uh, america is that unique situation where there are so many different jurisdictions and not just this one national church so i think it brings up confusion but um just to round it out i i wanted to go into some other advice that you have for converts a big a big uh, question consistently from people was, well, I'd like some books to read, you know, to, to don this subject. But yeah. even just more than that, just like beha- good behaviors to develop, um, good things to do that, uh, you know, if you're inquiring or wanting to convert into the faith, what are these things that you should do? So uh, I am going to try to be a little bit brief um, because I do have to end soon. I'm sorry. Uh um, but I know this is our probably our last section. Um, anyway, yes. 
So firstly, what I would advise is, yes, get to a church. But when it comes to what to read, I, I have two books that I give to people uh, when they're new. If they're Christians, I give them two. If they weren't Christian or they weren't very religious, I only give them one. But the first book is called The Mountain of Silence by Kyriakos Markidis. I really recommend this book. Really excellent. Um, it's really good for getting out of your head about the Orthodox Church and into your heart. Uh, the next book is called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy by Andrew Stephen Damick. Uh, he's a priest of the Antiochian Archdiocese in Pennsylvania. So that book is great because it compares orthodoxy mainly to other Christian denominations, but even other religions. And it is very detailed and very well researched. Um, I've had many people vouch for it. I've also heard, well, I've, I know one priest who knocked it a little bit, but that's inevitable with books. You know, because I don't know for sure if everything he writes in there, he's like, I don't know of every detail about every other religion or Christian group is is totally accurate. But I can say that many I know from those groups say, yes, he accurately portrays what, what I used to believe. So it's great because it compares the two without being judgmental. It's not confrontational. It's not polemical. It's just factual. It's really good. Um, I highly recommend those two books. There's also some other classics, but those are the starter books that I usually recommend. Um, but I, I can say the, the biggest thing is just to honestly reiterate what I said before. Don't live your faith on the Internet. Oh, also, don't live your faith through uh, political movements, through associating. For example, like I know this this guy right here that I'm talking to <laughs> is a fairly conservative man. But our church is not about a conservative party. It's not a Republican church. It's not a Democrat church. It's it's a church. It's a church that has various people of various political persuasions all coming. So I have to say, there are some people who sometimes end up in the Orthodox Church, and maybe you're tempted by this as well, because it might look like a conservative paradise, where everything here is like it's like the Western world in the 1800s, for example. It's, it's modern people who live in a modern world. And, the, and a lot of them have, uh, you know, different perspectives. And they may even really disagree with each other on matters of politics. But matters of faith we hold in common. So I just want to reiterate that because it is common for people to come looking for a cultural, uh, 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 like a Western cultural experience or looking for a political experience and they're probably going to be disappointed. Um, most Orthodox churches don't function that way. We're, we're a community based on faith and not on politics or culture primarily. Well, maybe ethnic culture in some cases, but typically it's not a matter of like Western civilization. That's why we gather. Most people don't, don't even talk about that. Uh, we gather because we have God and we have our, our, our faith in common, our Lord in common, and we gather to deepen that faith. And to come to know Christ even better. So I encourage you, check out this church, but make sure that you're not doing it for a cultural reason. Uh, try to do it to get to know that God that we're talking about. To come to understand God from the heart as we all are trying to pass on that experience. The main point of this faith is to experience God in your own heart and to know him as a friend knows a friend which can happen and does happen and easily happens on this orthodox path. Um, I only caution this because many people become these culture warriors online on behalf of the faith 
and fight other cultural warriors on the other side of their political spectrum. And that has nothing to do with orthodoxy whatsoever. We're about knowledge of the true God and knowledge from the heart, not primarily the head. Yep. I, I, I definitely agree with that. And as, as somebody who is, you know, been in this orthodox space online, but also being a member of the church and really practicing it, I can, I can definitely say that this is true and that it, it is a very important thing to keep in mind that, you know, what you come to find in orthodoxy is not this political or cultural thing. It is a deeply religious one um, that may sometimes produce these results uh, that you want in culture and politics. But at the end of the day, there is something higher there. And that's what's yeah. important with it. That's right. Um, right. And you're right. There is overlap with culture and politics, mm-hmm. but we're not about culture and politics. Yes. Yep. Um, so now I wanted to give you the floor because I normally give my guests the floor to promote things that they really want to promote. Um, though you not being as much in the public sphere, I can imagine that there isn't a lot of things specific to you. But if there is something that you really think that my audience has not already heard that they need to hear, I'd like to give you that that time to do that. You mean like promote an initiative I like or things like that? Yes, yes, precisely. Uh, I, I have a number of things that I really support, but I could say, hey, if you really like this interview, um, we're trying to build a new iconostas in our church. <laughs> and Peyton could give you all that info. Uh, but we are currently fundraising to redecorate our church. Um, our church was built in 2009 or finished being built. Um, if, if you like what you saw and it, and it helped you in some way, I mean, even a little donation could go a long way. It's on our website, xcsavior.org, xc for Christ, xcsavior.org, and uh, click the donation thing for a redecoration project. Honestly, anything you could give would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I, I mean, that's a little self-aggrandizing there, but uh, yeah, that, that that's something very dear to my heart right now. Yeah. And and I will definitely be leaving that in the description for if if people are interested to donate even uh, for our Conestas project, um, as well if you're by chance somewhere in the area you can come check us out, uh, that would be great. But uh, also just in general, uh, you know, helping out our church is, is something that's great, and and helping out the church in general is something that you know God has asked of us and. Uh, I definitely think it's a worthwhile project. So if you could help us out, that would be great. Um, But I want to thank you, Father, for coming on and uh, discussing orthodoxy with my audience because it's it's been something I've wanted to do for a while, and uh, I wanted to do it the right way, and I think we have. So I thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for making me not afraid anymore. For years I've been thinking I never want to do something like this because I'm afraid of messing up. I hope I didn't mess up too much, but... Thanks for uh, doing it. I get out of my comfort zone a little. And you are welcome. And thank you, everybody, for watching. And uh, hope to see you next time. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, thank you. you. Now watch this drive.